0: In a little while, we'll be chanting the refuges and precepts as part of uh, the talk tonight. Uh, I have some extra sheets here. Does anyone still need a copy of this chanting sheet? Okay. Oh. If you could just come up if you need one. I'm wired in here and can't bring them to you so easily. Oh, a few people, okay. So in a certain sense, the uh, entering into the formal retreat, in a way, it will really begin with uh, the chanting of these refuges and precepts together, this uh, ancient tradition of beginning a period of practice this way. And uh, Carol spoke a bit about the precepts last night, basically this orientation around non-harming, undertaking that commitment and uh, the words on the sheet here that I've that you've all taken are uh, familiar to most of you maybe all of you you've all done a number of retreats uh, it's familiar words there might be new to one or two of you I don't know This language that we'll be chanting in the Pali language is uh, this ancient language come from the t- coming from, uh, the time of the Buddha, it's the language that uh, the earliest texts are preserved in. The only reason we have this language is because these teachings have been preserved uh, in this way. It doesn't exist in any other for any other reason. It's not spoken anywhere except uh, in places where people are studying the ancient uh, teachings of the Buddha. There's a certain power in a language that comes from that kind of Lineage over the years, just in the sound and the feeling of of the words in one's mouth as we speak them, and so we will chant these uh, together this evening. We'll chant the f- the five precepts. Uh, you'll notice there are eight on there, and in a in a two or three days, we'll speak more about the uh, sixth, seventh, and eighth precept. Uh, That's something some of you may wish to undertake. Some of you may already have decided you wish to practice this retreat, uh, undertaking these eight precepts, and you should please feel free to go ahead and do that. But we'll, we'll do a more formal taking of those eight precepts for those who wish to do that, this extra level of renunciation, you could say. And so by chanting this, part of what happens in the doing of that is the creating of this retreat container. I mean, a retreat like this is a marvelous thing. You know, it, it arises out of the conditions that come together that we bring here, this shared intention that we bring, you know, it doesn't exist except through that coming together and bringing this uh, intention we have to cultivate wisdom, love, kindness, clarity, understanding. And we create a place of safety by engaging with these precepts. We create a safe place for us to undertake this practice, which is really a critical aspect of what we do, so that we can really open in a, an environment where we feel safe, where we feel at ease. And so we'll voice this intention with the refuges and precepts together. And we'll create this container of the retreat through that. And also, in a way, we will be touching our highest aspiration in voicing this, I feel. And so this I want to go through the refuges and precepts chanting, um, the the format of this chant, because there's actually a lot there. And we can tend to sort of say, oh, yeah, we'll do that. We'll get that in place. Do that at the beginning of a retreat. Yeah, we always do this chant and we either like it or we don't. That relationship we may have there and we we can kind of figure, okay, it's done. I got, that's done. Now I can get to the retreat. But there's a lot to this and it's something that is, uh, it's an ongoing exploration. It's not something we just get in place and then that's it. And so in this, Chant that we do the first part is this homage, this namotasa, bhagavato, arahato samma, sambudasa. You know what, what does that mean, this homage? You know, yes, we have the translation there. Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. But what does it mean to pay homage to something? Something to reflect on, not an answer I'm going to give you now but a reflection we might look at. What does it mean to do this, to pay homage? What would we hold as worthy of paying homage to? We don't use this word that much in daily life. I'm going to go pay homage this afternoon. We don't say that very often to our friends. I'll see you later. I got to go pay homage. <laughs> you know, it's, it's an unusual word in a certain way. You know, you might have noticed uh, the teachers, some of your fellow yogis, you yourself may come into the hall and, and bow or gesture with a, a kind of uh, gesture of respect. You know, I usually bow three times to this Buddha image here behind me. That's a tradition, and it's to bow, to hold the hands in this, this posture, this mudra, Anjali mudra anjali meaning respect an offer of respect a gesture of respect it's said to this prayer posture at the heart center is said this this uh, mudra is said to represent a, a lotus bud something that might flower forth you could say there's a certain beauty in that and some of you might wonder what's up if you see me or others bowing you know and wondering what's up with that and if you're expected, you know, to start bowing if that's not something you're used to doing. You know, if you're a good yogi, you'll start bowing, you know, you have to become a buddhist whatever that is. So that's some expectation here. But we none of us have an agenda about any of you becoming a buddhist. It's helpful I think to remember that the buddha was not a buddhist. You know, what is what is a buddhist? might ask ourselves that question but then you know we do some of us bow i bow a lot i like to bow it's a good stretch for the back if nothing else <laughs> but it's it's a beautiful gesture and i bring a very um i bring a deep aspiration into my mind when i do it i may say more about that as uh, the retreat unfolds but what might we bow to what would we pay homage to you know what 's worth venerating you know it 's not this this sculpture here. it we may like it, find it appealing or not it's a, a casting in metal I've made things like that. I used to do work where it involved not making Buddha statues but things that were cast sculptures you know and and there's no. There's some value to the metal, but there's no intrinsic, inherent value in that thing. And so, yes, we bow to what it symbolizes. That's an obvious point in a certain way. It's a symbol, but it's worth thinking about what that symbol is then. And traditionally, one would bow three times to the triple gem. This is not new to you. The, The triple gem of Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Or we could say one bows to wakefulness, to wisdom, to one's potential for this realization. And we can bow to that. We might find that worthy of paying homage to. Maybe this symbol of the historic Buddha has meaning for us in some way. But it's worth exploring in in each of us in our own heart, in our own minds, what might we hold worthy of paying homage to. In ourselves, in the world. And then this idea of refuge. You know, we go to these uh, three refuges. We we go to the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. Three times we do it. Not just once. We go to these things for refuge. What is refuge? Again, you know, we don't say, Oh, I'm, I'm, excuse me, I need to go take refuge to our friends. Not very often, probably. But what is a refuge? It's a a place of safety, right? It's like a safe harbor, or you could say a place where we could put our heart that's safe. It's a secure place. And in a world that's constantly changing, that's unpredictable, where can we find that? Where do we find a place of real safety there in the, a world of change and a world that we can't predict in any way? Where do we find safety there? And so we have this triple jam. We have refuge in the Buddha. It's said that after his awakening, after his enlightenment, and after he'd spent time around uh, the Bodhi tree there, and had become convinced that he would teach. The Buddha has set off on a journey. He's looking for the first five disciples that uh, were the first, his uh, companions who, were, who would become his first five disciples, I should say. And he's cruising down the road and he looks good, right? Just enlightened, you know. Yeah, he might look kind of good. He's glowing, he's radiant, and uh, he meets someone on the road. And, and the person said, is struck by him, and says, well, are you, what are you? Are you a human? Are you a god? And the Buddha said, I am awake. Answered the question, I am awake. And the name Buddha, the root bud is means awake, wakefulness. And so we have this image of the Buddha, this image of, of one who is awake, who has awakened. And maybe, as I said, maybe this idea of, of the Buddha as a human who lived and, and had this realization, that might be meaningful to us. We might say there's a refuge in that, this refuge in wakefulness, in our own possibility to, to wake up. You know, the Buddha said, if this were not possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. It's always pointing to... This, or this realization that he had, he said, that's what I want you to see. Pointing to that always. That's all he was ever interested in. And it's always possible for us to wake up to the moment, to the truth of things. So we can, it doesn't matter that things are changing or unpredictable. We can know the truth of the moment, so we can, we can take refuge there. That's a, a safe place. This wakefulness, awakening, awakening to the moment. We have the refuge in Dhamma. The second of these, what is Dhamma? This word has more than one meaning. Dhamma means the Buddha's teachings. That's called the Buddha Dhamma. All these teachings, and this is great for us. You know, we don't have to figure this out all on our own. Buddha did that, and he he was pretty good at teaching it. And so we have that as a resource to draw on. The word Dhamma also means the law, like the law of nature. Again, it's like the truth of how it really is. Well, that's something we can know, potentially know, in any moment. That's always there. That's a real place of safety. We can take refuge in the truth of nature, the law of nature, the way it is now. That's another place of safety. And then the refuge in Sangha. Traditionally, it's the Arya Sangha, those who have practiced after the Buddha and realized awakening, following the path he was pointing to. That may have meaning for us also. In the chanting, it says "Supatipanno Bhagavato Sawaka Sango," the blessed ones, disciples who have practiced well. And so we can perhaps take refuge in that lineage over time. Yes, these people, this, pra- this path is is tried and true. And those, there are those who have gone before us, have walked it, and we can follow in their footsteps. We may take some quality of refuge in that lineage, that tradition, that movement over time. One teacher uh, defined this quality of sangha as a, this marvelous organism that we create through our shared intention, alignment of this shared intention. This heart inclination, you could say, towards love and wisdom, kindness. He described it as, it's like individuals looking into a common space. So we were all looking into a room through our own window, right? We all have our own window. We look into this room through these eyes, through all that we bring in our own hearts and minds, all our conditioning, our perspective on things. But we're looking into something that's more timeless and more universal than any individual story that might be there for any one of us, right? We're looking into this something bigger than our individuality. And yet our individuality is is there and it's honored and it's part of things. But no one vision is going to run the show. We, We look into something greater and create sangha. So we're creating that here. And that is a place of safety for us, this shared intention. And then we have the precepts themselves here, this thing we'll actually chant. Carol spoke about the the first five of these last night, the precepts. So I won't go over them. And you all should uh, be familiar with them, I think. what we're undertaking here with these precepts, this orientation towards harmony, towards non-harming, non-harming ourselves, not harming others. We're not intentionally adding to the suffering of the world, you could say. And this, this, is, this is the very foundation. The whole practice rests on our conduct, on this sila, this ethical conduct. Buddha just talked about this on and on throughout the teachings, the importance of this. That no real progress could happen is possible without this foundation of this attention to how we live, how we are in the world. I mean, if everyone in the world made a half-hearted attempt to even engage at all with the precepts, we would have a golden age on this planet overnight. If everyone just even thought about the possibility, it would change everything, let alone actually lived by these precepts. It would completely transform the world. This isn't a small thing that we do here. This is powerful and beautiful. And our whole practice rests on this. And it's something that is constantly being refined as our practice deepens and our understanding unfolds. If we live a life of non-harming, then the mind is free of remorse and worry. There's more calm, tranquility, and ease in our hearts and mind. This opens the whole practice. Concentration follows upon this. Our meditation deepens understanding arises. And the Buddha described this really beautifully in the short teaching in the Anguttara Nikaya. He said, uh, Ananda has has asked him a question, Lord, what is the benefit of virtuous ways of conduct? What is their reward? And the Buddha goes through this list. He said, virtuous ways of conduct have non-remorse as their benefit and reward. Non-remorse has gladness. Gladness has joy. Joy has serenity. Serenity has happiness. Happiness has concentration. Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they really are, as its benefit and reward. This knowledge and vision has disenchantment and dispassion as its benefit and reward. And disenchantment and dispassion have knowledge and vision of liberation as their benefit and reward. Hence, ananda, virtuous ways of conduct lead step by step to the highest. And in that same teaching, he goes on to say that well, it's, it's not. this is a natural law. If this is there, then this follows, then this follows. That this is just a natural thing. If one is, is steeped in virtuous ways of living, then these things follow naturally. It's not, one doesn't have to make an act of will. So it's a powerful thing. And these precepts are not laws or commandments it's not that it's something we um, engage with as an exploration. We see what is the effect of this And then our commitment to living this way we're able to offer the gift of safety, of fearlessness. This is a one of the most important powerful gifts we could possibly offer is the gift of fearlessness in the world. When we think of beings living in the world, to be able to live in a fearless state is so incredible, to offer that, that beings who come to us, they know that they don't have to worry that we will harm them, that we have their best interests in our hearts. What a, what a wonderful thing we could offer. Beautiful, powerful gift to the world. And then the very end, we'll chant this idam mesilam maga pala nyana ho tu. This is this reflection on um, the dedication of the merit. And we say sadhu, sadhu, it's not on here, but I'll make you say sadhu three times. And this is this reflection on the power of this. It says, may this virtue of mine help bring about knowledge of the path and its fruit. It's this reflection on the power of this. May this be the cause and condition for my realization of of full liberation. It's an acknowledgement of that power. So let's chant these now that I've rambled on about them. Let's actually do the chanting. And uh, I guess because it's maybe somewhat new, or be a refresher for some of you, I'll, we'll do it somewhat call and response. Um, I'll do the, um, the namotasa in kind of two parts once, and then we'll, um, you know, in call and response, and then we'll do it two times altogether. I'll do each of the lines of the Buddham, dhamam, sangang, Saranga, Chami. Once and then you repeat call and response, you'll get it. And then we'll do the dutyampi and the tatiampi all together. And then I'll you'll just see how we'll do it. I'll just do it. (laughs) Don't have to explain it. But it'll be somewhat call and response-ish. But really hold in mind what you're doing when you chant this.
1: Namo tassa bhagavato Namo tassa bhagavato Arahato sammasambuddhassa Arahato sammasambuddhassa All together Namo tassa bhagavato Arahato sammasambuddhassa Namo Tassa Bhagavato arahato Sama Sambudasa Budang Sarananga Charmi
0: Budang Sarananga
1: Charmi Dhammang Sarananga Charmi Dhammang Sarananga Sangang Sarananga Sangang saranaṅga chāmi. All together. together. Dutiyāṁ Budang saranaṅga chāmi. Dutiyāṁ pi saranaṅga chāmi. Dutiyāṁ pi saranaṅga chāmi. Tatiampi budang saranaṅga chāmi. Tatiampi dam mung sarananga charmi. Tatiampi sangang sarananga charmi. Panati pata, Panati pata, ve ramani, wei ramani. Sikapa dam samadhi samādhyāmi Adina dana, Adina dana, Ve Ramani, we Ramani, Sika padang samadhi ami, padang samadhi ami, Abhramacharya, Abhramacharya, Ramani, Sika padang samadhi we Ramani, Sikapadang Samadiyami Musawada Musawada We Ramani, Sikapadang Samadiyami We Ramani, Sikapadang Samadiyami Sura Meraya Sura Meraya Majapamadathāna ma japam ramani sikha padang samadhiyami vai ramani sikha padang samadhiyami idang me silang idang me silang maga palanyana sa maga pala sa pachayo ho tu pachayo ho tu sadhu, 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 sadhu.
0: and that sadhu means well-spoken and it was well-spoken. You know, as I, I walked over here through the, the woods from where I'm staying one of the apartments at the forest refuge, I commute through the woods and uh, and I came out and I it was a beautiful sunset time and people were doing walking meditation out in the driveway and I had mostly mudita and some envy for you <laughs> I'll admit it I tried to get a friend of mine to he was going on retreat to switch with me earlier today <laughs> you teach I'll, I'll sit so uh, It was just so beautiful to see people practicing here. inspired me to do some walking meditation before coming in here. Last night Joseph spoke about uh, three things that would be useful, important, powerful supports for the practice. He spoke about silence, I think, as the first of these, or at least of one of them. I'm going to say a little bit more about this now. You know, if we just came here for this period of time, however long we're, we're coming for, six weeks, three months, and we didn't do any formal meditation practice, just really kept silence, just did that, it would be very powerful time. And so this uh, entering into silence in all the ways that we do that is is an incredible support for us. And so I really want to encourage you to to really embrace that, that as a gift to yourself and as a gift to everyone else here, undertaking silence in all the different ways we might do that. Yes, we let go of speaking for the most part, this noble silence. We may need to speak at times, but for the most part, we're... We're not speaking, but we have all these devices that we love so much. I think we should be buried with these electronic things like the the ancient Egyptians got all this stuff. Well, they'll pile us, cover us over with iPods and <laughs> cell phones. But if you've brought any of these with you, I sometimes say throw them in the pond, but I don't want to pollute the pond. So put them in the trunks of your cars. Or I think the office probably, Elizabeth said, they'll. you can check them in like your guns at the door. <laughs> check in your cell phones. <laughs> really let them go. And let, letting go of reading and writing as well, as much as possible. It's not like a thou shalt not read or write. But looking to see what's, what's the motivation be, behind reading or writing, and really looking at that and letting that go. In many of the monasteries where I have spent time, part of the, a chant that's done daily, part of what's usually part of the morning or evening chanting in some of these Theravada monasteries, there's uh, reflections that are chanted on the qualities of the Buddha and the Dhamma and the Sangha. Kind of my theme tonight, this triple gem. The chanting of the recollection of the qualities of the Dhamma, it's really it's really short. You'd think, oh the Dhamma, it's giant. We should have this long, we should chant on and on and on about it. It goes like this. So akato sanditiko akaliko ehipasiko, opanaiko, pachatamwe ditabo winyuhiti. That's it. Done. Bas. What is that? You know, it's short. But there's a lot there. So that first line, svakato bhagavata dhammo, usually it's translated, the dhamma is well expounded by the blessed one, well taught, well expounded. And I already mentioned earlier, that we have this wealth of teachings. It is well expounded. There's a lot of teachings we draw upon and, and And all of us will be drawing on those teachings over the course of this retreat and offer that to you in different ways. So the Dhamma is well expounded. We have that huge body of teachings that we can draw on. And the Buddha had this amazing gift of being able to teach in ways that were appropriate, suitable for his audience. So the teachings are presented in different ways. So we have that well-expounded teaching. The second quality, quality, sanditiko, it's usually uh, translated apparent here and now. Here and now. It points to this immediacy of this practice, right? It's apparent here and now, in this moment, in this moment. It's not apparent somewhere way off, out in some, other time or place, it's apparent here and now. It points to this uh, immediacy that the realization is in this moment, in the moment. It's an ongoing thing. This exploration of the truth of things. The truth is, is always the truth, right? It's not sometimes the truth. Right? It just is the way it is. That's what we're looking at. You know, one of my teachers once said, we're, just, we're swimming in Nibbana. And our faces are pressed up against the Buddha, but we just don't see it. But that possibility is there, so it's apparent here and now, this sanditiko. We're not creating something or getting something we don't already have. The third one of these, akaliko means timeless. These teachings aren't are not time-bound. They're not bound by time. They're just as relevant now as when the Buddha first taught. You know, it's not bound by time in that way. And when we undertake this exploration on a retreat, we enter into a very timeless place, don't we? Certainly, that's my experience on retreat. It's, time becomes very um, fluid. It's a timeless place that we enter. And this understanding is, is timeless. It's not bound by time. The truth was, is, and always will be the truth, not some idea, not some belief, but the way it is. It's just the way it is. Ehi pasiko. This is the best one. Inviting all to come and see. When the Buddha first was ordaining the, the monks and the nuns, he'd say, Ehi bhikkhuni, ehi biku, come. That was it. Until they started misbehaving, then they had to get all these rules. But early on, it was ehi, come. Come and see. And so there's no belief here, right? It's not a question of adopting some kind of system of belief or anything like that, or some philosophical stance that we, we take as, as a good Buddhist or something. It's this exploration. We put this into practice for ourselves. And there's this beautiful teaching where the Buddha I uh, was going uh, <clears throat> traveling to the area where the Kalamas, this clan called the Kalamas, and they were apparently, where they lived was kind of a, a lot of teachers, and at the time of the Buddha there were these wandering teachers all over the place. And these Kalamas said, the Buddha came and he, they said, you know, basically, I'm paraphrasing, you know, you say this, and this one says that, and this one says that, and how do we know? to believe? they all talk a good line, they look good, you look good. And the Buddha said, well, check it out. Put it into practice. See where it leads. Does it lead to good things or not? That's how you tell. You explore it for yourself. And so we offer the, the retreat as teachers in this role. As teachers, we offer it in this spirit of ehi pasiko, come and see. Look for yourself. It's an invitation in that way. Opanaiko, leading inward or leading onward. I've seen it translated both ways. Both of those are good. Talk about both leading inward and onward. Inward, it's apparent to truths that are are to be seen in this body and mind. We look into this heart, body, mind right now. That's where we see this understanding unfolds right there. So it leads us inward. We're exploring nature as it manifests in this mind and body and heart right now in this moment. And that's where we'll, we'll understand what the Buddha was pointing at. So it leads us inward in that way. Buddha said, we have everything we need in this fathom-long body for the whole deal. It's all right there. So it leads us inward to that place where we can really see what's going on there, to the understanding that's possible in that. And it leads onward. It leads onward to happiness, peace, freedom. We start to see this, to taste this for ourselves. So it leads inward and onward. And then this last phrase, pachatam vedita bo vinyuhiti. To be seen by the wise for themselves or to be experienced individually by those who are wise, how that's translated usually. And so the Buddha, like all great teachers, is pointing the way. The Buddha said, I am the guide who points along the way described himself in that way. And this is all great teachers are pointing the way. You know, Their fingers, they're pointing at the moon. Or maybe the moon's in your own heart, but they're pointing at that. They want you to look at them. They all want you to see the moon, not this, look at the moon. So they point at that, but then we have to walk on the path, they say, this is the path, this is the pathway that worked for me. And all the great teachers, okay, no, I started over here and I went that way. They point in the way that they understood. And so then we can walk the path with those instructions, with those guidelines, with that pointing out. But we have to walk it for ourselves. And our teachers can inspire us and they can carry us with their faith and with their wisdom. Of course, that's true. And they may carry us a long way. But ultimately, it's up to us. One way that that this path is described is in terms of what's called the ripening of the paramis, paramitas in Sanskrit, familiar to you all, I'm sure, this list of the paramis, these ten beautiful, noble qualities of mind, of heart, that, that in the tradition it said, over countless lifetimes the Buddha perfected these things. And that the, the quality the, the in the awakened, enlightened heart and mind, these paramis are brought to perfection. This is a way that the path is described. And these stories in the Jataka tales, He's teaching fables where the Buddha takes birth as often as an animal and, and uh, cultivates generosity or patience or energy or uh, all of these different paramis. Here's Sariputta's asking the Buddha a question. How many qualities are there, Lord, issuing in Buddhahood? There are, Sariputta, ten qualities issuing in Buddhahood. What are the ten? Giving Sariputta is a quality issuing in Buddhahood. Virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving kindness, and equanimity. These, Sariputta, are qualities issuing in Buddhahood. These are these paramis. And we can see our practice as as these coming to greater and greater fruition or ripening. We can hold our practice in this way. And it's a powerful way to hold the practice. Because it, it really expands the breadth of what we think of as practice. You know, we can we can get kind of narrow with that. I think well practice is as, as when I'm sitting in formal meditation on a retreat time. But these qualities of the paramis, they're being uh, cultivated, strengthened throughout our lives in so many ways, no matter what we're doing. So our practice can become very wide when we hold it in terms of the ripening of these beautiful qualities of mind, of heart. It can help us cut through the tendency to be uh, constantly judging and assessing and evaluating our experience and evaluating and judging ourselves and our practice based on that experience. That's whatever seems to be happening in the moment. And, you know, we can fall into that so easily, isn't it? You know, we, we judge our experience, we judge ourselves based on our perception of that experience. We focus on trying to meditate, trying to get concentrated, to do it, to make something happen. Maybe we're trying to reclaim something that happened in the past that we think was, that was really it. Get it back. And we can miss qualities that are developing just through our willingness to keep at it, to start over and over, to begin again and again. This is our whole practice. We're going to begin again. A gazillion times over the next weeks. If you kept track, it would be a big number, but starting again. You know, maybe our whole retreat is about patience, our energy, our generosity and kindness. We can miss that if we narrow our focus down too much. So I encourage you to hold a very wide field of what we think of as our practice. And really important to look and see what kinds of attitudes and expectations and what we're bringing to when we begin a retreat to the retreat, what's in our mind and heart, what agendas might be there. Usually we have some kinds of agendas something we're working on. It's good to look and see what's in there, what's going on, what have I, what's in there, my bringing to the retreat, looking at our assumptions about reality, about ourselves, about what we believe is true or possible. This is a quotation from a a priest named Henri J.M. Nguyen. He once said this, The spiritual life is a life in which we wait, actively present to the moment, trusting that new things will happen to us, new things that are far beyond our own imagination, fantasy, or prediction. This indeed is a very radical stance toward life in a world preoccupied with control. I really love this quotation. I use it a lot. I think it's a great description of mindfulness practice, this this idea of waiting actively present to the moment. And trusting that things will present themselves. And we have no idea what that is. I have a colleague, teacher and colleague of mine who, who describes this same quality, this active presence, as soft readiness. I like that description of mindfulness, this soft readiness, and this idea of not knowing. You know, Suzuki Roshi spoke about beginner's mind. Sometimes it's called don't know mind. We let go of of everything we think we know, all of our assumptions about what's true and real, and meet the moment with a freshness and aliveness. You know, we can have such strong beliefs about who we are, about reality about life, we just we don't even look at them. We don't even notice them. We don't question the truth of that. We take it for granted. We don't even look to see if it's true or not so much. One time I was in Burma practicing with Sayada Upandita, teacher many of you have heard of. Probably you'll hear us mention him. He's. Uh, Powerful and incredible uh, meditation master. One time he said, he made this really simple statement. He said, that which did not exist, comes into being, takes birth, and then has its life and, and passes away. That's that's the truth of each moment. It did not exist. It comes into being. We don't know. You know, we think we know what a breath is. Do we really know what this breath is? (coughs) Hmm. There's a quality of that i think is really useful to bring to the retreat its a generosity of heart a generous spirit really useful in our practice the the path is also in other ways described as as the trainings in dana sila and bhavana in giving in ethical conduct and in, in the training of the mind so this <coughs> quality of generosity is another foundation for the practice I won't say too much about it tonight, maybe uh, later in the treat, retreat one of us will speak about this in more detail. But um, but there's a, this generosity of heart is, is powerful support to our practice. We might reflect on the generosity of those in our lives who have helped to make it possible for us to come here. A lot of uh, people who have Perhaps are covering for us in various ways, or who have uh, helped to support us in order to come and be on the retreat. Great generosity that we've received. This generous um, quality of heart. You know, we're so conditioned often to look to the external world and our circumstances for the reasons why we're happy or unhappy, and looking outside for that. But this uh, cultivating this generous. Spirit can help us to find a, a place of inner abundance, which doesn't have to do with our external circumstances, an inner kind of wealth. You know, we can feel that we're not complete so much of the time. You know, and the whole world of, of advertising is conditioning this in us, all these things that we need them, then we'll be okay and happy and complete. Generosity is an expression of non-greed, non-clinging. And this goes to the heart of the teachings. The Buddha taught liberation through non-clinging. So this generosity of heart is a direct antidote to clinging, grasping in the mind and the heart. And it really opens the practice. When we find this quality of inner abundance, we can discover we don't need so much to be happy. And so see if you can hold this quality by giving yourself the gift of this retreat, giving yourself this time in silence, giving this gift of silence to everyone else who's here and sharing this time with you. Give yourself to the process as it unfolds. And this generous quality of heart, of mind, can lead to two other really useful attitudes or climates of mind that can really help us. I'll mention them briefly. But this generosity of heart, this quality of inner inner abundance, naturally conditions the arising of feelings of gratitude and of loving kindness, of friendliness. You know, we have, all of us, who are able to come and do this, we have a lot to be grateful for that we can take for granted. You know, we don't so much, I think, tend to, to count our blessings. We, it's easy to see all that we don't, that we seem to lack, all we feel we don't have. But to count one's blessings is a really beautiful thing to do. Someone once told me they had a practice where every day they tried to think of five things they were grateful for, you know, just food and shelter. Here we have the opportunity to be on retreat, to hear the Dhamma, to practice. We have friends in our life, all these things we might reflect on as uh, things to be grateful for really useful to turn our attention to that when it's so easy to see everything we think we don't have. And this quality of loving kindness that Joseph mentioned last night. I'll say a few more words about it. It it really is a, a crucial aspect of, of the ground that our practice rests upon. This quality of Friendliness engenders qualities of acceptance and patience and really critical for our practice to unfold. Metta loving kindness softens the heart, increases its pliability, its flexibility, its spaciousness. This quality puts us at ease, and these are all of these are really important and helpful in our practice. This quality of loving kindness is it's not only compatible with, with the path, but it uh, really takes us along. It, it pulls us along towards awakening, towards liberation. We could say liberation without love is not possible. And in an essential way, the practice of freedom is the practice of love, and the practice of love is the practice of freedom. These things are not separate. You know, this, The practice of meditation is about the transformation of the mind and the heart. You could say it's, it's the practice of bringing the mind and the heart together. There's a quotation from Krishnamurti I'd like to read speaks to this beautifully. He said once, when the heart enters into the mind, the mind has a very different quality. It is really then limitless, not only in its capacity to think and to act efficiently, but also in its sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love, and it isn't the love of the one or of the many. Rather, it's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar Whether golden or earthenware, it's inexhaustible. Without love, there is not freedom. Without love, freedom is merely an idea which has no value at all. And finally, one last encouragement. I want to reiterate, I think I'm not the only one reiterating Joseph's Suggestion of making your mind you're making our mind our friend making friends befriending our mind our heart put those mind and heart together you know we can approach practice like we're setting out into battle <laughs> set up a situation where we're in contention with our experience with our mind with our heart you know like we see our our minds our internal world as a problem to be fixed, or an enemy to be subdued. We bring a lot of judgment, criticism there. But this practice requires the intention to understand rather than to judge. And we need acceptance rather than struggle and resistance. And we need kindness rather than blame. A number of years ago, I worked with a program. I was living in San Francisco at that time, and I, I helped with a program. They were studying the migration of hawks, these big birds of prey through the Golden Gate area north of San Francisco. These birds don't like to fly over open water, so they cross at a narrow point there where the bridge is. And so they they gather in the area north of the Golden Gate Bridge there. and And so we were counting them, and we would Gently trap them and put bands, band them and measure them and weigh them, and trying to preserve habitat for these birds and understand how they how they live. And so you had to learn how to hold a, a red-tailed hawk. Right? These are big, honking birds, and they're fierce, and they'll they'll bite you or put a talon through your thumb if you're not careful. And so, but they're also they're birds. They have hollow bones, and you have to be careful. So you have to hold them gently but firmly. This is a good way we can relate to our mind and heart. Hold it somewhat firmly but very gently. You know, So we don't necessarily let our mind run all over the place, but we don't crush it in some way. We don't relate to our heart and mind as an adversary. So we bring this quality of friendliness of befriending our inner world we receive life into this field of kind care so I'll end tonight with a quotation from a Burmese teacher of mine Sayadaw U Jotika how can you make your mind your real friend by practicing mindfulness by really watching your mind by really paying attention throughout the day. Then you will see the truth about your mind. And when you see the truth, gradually it will become purer and it will become your friend. So we'll have just a a very short bit of silence here. Let these words drift off into the evening.